Alright, let's go to John chapter 3. We'll finish chapter 3 this morning. Um, considering again, as I mentioned earlier, the, the question, what is your measure of success? And if we're, if we're honest, and hopefully we are, um, we, we see people around us in various avenues of life that we think that's success. They've achieved maybe great things in areas like career or family or education, um, possessions or even perceived happiness, charisma. And we look at, we look at them and we say, man, that, that person is successful or those folks are successful. But we have to ask the question, what is the standard for success? Is that standard merely measurables like a bank account or a position in a career or education level or stuff people own? In reality, viewing success this way leaves us in this perpetual cycle of defeat and in a perpetual frenzy because we're never measuring up to that standard of success that we've placed in our own minds and we're working like crazy constantly to measure up to that standard. Uh, and thankfully, God's standard for success is incredibly different than the world's standard. His standard is defined by essentially one word, faithfulness. And in the example of John the Baptist, we're going to see from John chapter 3 this morning, we see a model of what, what faithfulness looks like. And one brother commenting on this passage makes the statement, Sooner or later, your glory will fade, but Jesus remains. So spend your life glorifying Him. Context here, John chapter 3, uh, verses 22 through 36. We have essentially overlapping ministries between Jesus and John the Baptist. The setting here, as we'll see in these first couple of verses, is that of the Judean countryside where, where water was obviously plentiful. John the Baptist, up to this point, has had a significant following even after those pronouncements from chapter 1, whenever he declares about Jesus that he's the Lamb of God and some of his followers actually left to follow after Jesus. And John the Baptist is still ministering, but he's still ministering. He's pointing to the kingdom of heaven and pointing to the Messiah. So let's read the text and then we'll consider the idea of God's standard for success. So John chapter 3 and verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples over and, and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hear him, hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must decrease, but I... He must... I'm sorry, wrong. <laughs> he must increase, but I must decrease. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. 
Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So what we have here in this text is really kind of the, the, the last snapshot that we see of the life of John the Baptist. We have a narrative that's very similar to the first part of chapter 3 where Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus. And then uh, in, in the first part, verses 16 and 21, verses 16 through 21 are essentially commentary on the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus about being born again. And then John the Apostle comes and writes about John the Baptist through verse 30, and then provides in verses 31 through 36 some commentary on what he's just written about, uh, what he's just recorded about John the Baptist. And so let's ask the question, what is our measure of success? And then a further question to that first one, how are we to be successful according to God's standard? God's standard of success is that of faithfulness. We'll see that in just as we walk through the text here with John the Baptist, that of, that of being faithful to which God has entrusted us with. And so three ways that we see how we are to be successful in, from God's standard from the text this morning. First way that we're successful according to God's standard is we trust in God's sovereignty. We must trust in God's sovereignty. So we see the, 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 the stage is set there, verses 22, 23, 24. There's baptizing going on. John's baptizing in one place. Jesus is baptizing in another place. And then verse 25, there's this discussion that springs up between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. We know nothing more about what that conversation was concerning. Maybe the issue of water to wine that Jesus performed at the wedding. Uh, but the, the situation begins with purification. But then the, soon the, the real situation, the real challenge, the problem is revealed in verse 26. They came to John and said to him, some of John's followers, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So you get what's going on here. John's followers real, are realizing that, wait, we're experiencing a consistent exodus that are going to this other guy. And I mean, certainly there's some there's some extreme exaggeration here. All are going to him. Um, these guys are experiencing what we would what we would call catastrophe syndrome. The sky is falling because what we've given our lives to is apparently being put aside to this other guy's situation. And so there's at least a significant number of people who are following after Jesus. And John, the baptizer's followers, don't fully grasp the situation. They see this. They see the dwindling crowds. They see this loss of prominence and resulting directly from their followers leaving to follow this other guy. And so what would we call this in practical terms, in, in, in our language, what would we call this? We would call this something along the lines of maybe envy, jealousy, an unhealthy sense of competition, this, this reality of we're not measuring up. And so what, are the, what were they doing? Now just just under, understand this is quite a ludicrous situation. They are comparing themselves and the ministry of John the Baptist to that of Jesus. <laughs> Every ministry has to pale in comparison to the one that is calling people to Jesus. But when the light starts shining brighter on someone else, they become envious. We are very much prone to the same. We think others are better off. We think others maybe have it easier. Maybe they are more successful. So therefore, God must like them more than me. God must love them more than me. And so John the Baptist's followers here become envious, and, and we're often prone to the same 
envy, which the root of envy is that of pride. It's a self-centeredness, a, 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 a focus that is on us wanting to lift ourselves up quite often at the expense of others. But John's reply to his followers points to his absolute trust in God's sovereignty. Verse 27. So they come and they say, hey, everybody's leaving. It, we're done if you don't do something about this. And John says in verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Not one thing in life is left to chance. Now listen to this. Not one thing in life is left to chance. Verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And so John's comment here, his statement of truth leaves no room for anything in life to be left to chance, to be left to accident. Even one thing reminds us that God is in the middle of every detail of life. Absolutely every detail of life, God is in the middle. God is working his providential hand in every aspect of our lives. And so God is sovereign over good things in our lives that we rejoice in. God is sovereign over bad things in our lives that we are less inclined to rejoice in. God is sovereign over good people. God is sovereign over bad people. Jesus himself is going to tell Pilate at the end of John's gospel in chapter 19, verse 11, that Pilate has the authority of death over Jesus, or so he thinks. Jesus tells him, you, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. And so not one thing in life is left to chance. And for, for the church, for us as Christians, to embrace this reality is a game changer. For us to understand that there is no such thing as an accident in God's economy. There is no coincidence. There is no chance in God's economy. And so we trust in God's sovereignty. And, and when we trust in God's trust in God's sovereignty gives us proper perspective about life and especially success in life. We're reminded that everything that we have is from God, but also everything that we don't have is from God. It's not just all that he gives us is from him. It's also whatever he withholds from us is from him as well. And so we can live with confidence in the now of life. So let's think just practically for a moment here how this impacts everyday life. What what do we want out of life? We want something we can be passionate about, right? That's if you if you do read some of the modern research about success, the the standard of success in the the younger generations is no longer uh, stuff. It's no longer money and possessions and things. It's it's satisfaction. It's living out your passion. It's doing something that you care about. And so often we may think, man, my life is boring. My life is just boring. Let's make this a little more applicable. Let's think about your job or your current status in life. Now, some people do have the privilege of working in a way that, that greatly aligns with their passion. Most of the population, however, work. And so there's this idea, love what you do and you'll never have to work a day in your life. Right? Sounds good. That's not reality. It's actually a terrible mindset to have. The point of your job, the point of your work, the point of your op occupation is not just to have something to fuel your passion. The point of your job, the point of your life is for you to live for God's glory in that avenue of life. And you do so by trusting in sovereignty. R.C. Sproul commenting on, on this statement specifically from John. He wrote, the term vocation comes from the Latin word that means to call. God has called each of us to a place 
where we are in this life. Sadly, we often slip into jealousy, envy, and backbiting, trying to advance our position at others' expense, tearing down our neighbors so that we can replace them in status or in exaltation. When we do that, we despise the gifts that God has distributed in His wisdom. And so we can be content in our station in life as we are trusting in God's sovereignty. And so, more than living out your passion... Your present station in life, the reality has to be I'm trusting in God's sovereignty in where I am now. And if that means you go to work five days a week and work hard, show up on time, leave on time, do what you're supposed to do, work with integrity and responsibility and do it again the next week and you do it for God's glory, that's a demonstration that you're trusting in God's sovereignty. John's point here in verse 27 is a person a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Everything that we have and everything we do not have is coming under the providential hand of God. And for us as his children, this is good. Just think big picture from Scripture. Why can we trust in God's sovereignty? Well, we're told to in Proverbs 3, 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Proverbs one twenty one: The king's heart. The ruler's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Proverbs twenty twenty four: God rules over your daily life. A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? God, God rules sovereignly over your salvation. Acts 13, 48. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. God reigns over all things, Ephesians 1.11. God works all things according to the counsel of His will, Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens. He, is, he does all that He pleases. And so how are we to live a successful, faithful life according to God's standard? First of all, we have to trust in God's sovereignty. We have to trust that God is ruling and reigning providentially over every event of life. And every station of life. And I, I would encourage you in your personal time with the Lord just to sit back and look at the sovereign dots that God connected in your life to bring you where you are today. To possibly hear the gospel for the first time or to possibly remember the gospel again or to realize that outside of His kind providential hand you would be who knows where. But remember that God is sovereignly connecting the dots of your life to fulfill His plan for your life. And so we, we trust in His sovereignty. So number one, we trust in His sovereignty. Number two, we live for God's glory. So we trust in God's sovereignty. Also, we live for God's glory. These verses 28 through 30, John says, You, you yourselves bear, bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before Him. The one who's, who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears Him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. We live for God's glory. Your life is a glory pursuit. My life is a glory pursuit. We are all pursuing glory. The question is, whose glory? Whose glory are we pursuing? We must rejoice in Jesus receiving glory from our lives, even if it means like John the Baptist, we just fade into the background. Like you understand what's going on here. This, this guy was the deal. Right? He had all, he was the center of attention. People were coming from miles around to see the John the Baptizer show. They wanted to come and see this guy who dressed in a very unique, creative fashion and ate undesirable foods. They wanted to come and see this guy who was making it his business to call out the religious elite, elite of society. 
They came because of the show, but they also came because there was this guy who was declaring the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. And according to Jesus' words, John the Baptist was actually a big deal. This is what Jesus said about John the Baptist in Matthew eleven eleven. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So if anybody outside of Jesus has a right to claim, hey, I'm a big deal, it's John the Baptist. For John the Baptist, however, personal glory was not the goal of his life. He was okay and desirable with Jesus receiving all the glory, all the attention, all the focus from his life. And so his role was that of to constantly point to, constantly point to Jesus, point attention away from himself and point to Jesus, which is what we are to be about as well. So let's think just for a second what, what John did here in verses 28, 29, and 30. So to live for God's glory, verse 28, we must understand our role in God's kingdom work. So verse 28, you yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ. Now this, these were his confessions. This is what John the writer wrote about John the baptizer. If you flip back to chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Same guy we're reading about there in chapter 3. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. He was not the light. He was not the focus. If you skip down to verse 19, this is the, the battery of questions that John the Baptist experiences from the Jews. They come and they say, hey, who are you? Verse 20, he says, I am not the Christ. Well, then what? Are you Elijah? He said, no, I'm not. Are you the prophet? No. So they said, who are you? Verse 22, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Never claim to fame for himself. Simply declaring that he understood his role in God's kingdom work. The whole point of his life was to point to someone else. And if you think about this as Christians, what are we? We, we are simply the vessel that God uses to house this greatest treasure that is the gospel. Second Corinthians 4, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted. We, we like verses 8, 9, and 10. We're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body of death, of, in the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. We, we focus our attention on the first, on the second half of those verses. We're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. But the reality is, we're afflicted in every way. We're perplexed. We're persecuted. We're struck down. But all of these others are true as well. We're always caring about in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. We have to understand our role in God's kingdom work. If we're going to live for God's glory, we have to understand who we are, who God has created us to be, and how that functions in His kingdom. So verse 28, to live for God's glory, we must understand our role in God's kingdom work. Verse 29, to live for God's glory, we must understand that Jesus is the goal of our lives. What is the goal of your life? Jesus. What is the highest calling in your life? Jesus. 
Why did God create you? Jesus. Jesus is the goal of our lives. We are not the point. We are not the focus. We are not the main attraction. Jesus alone is center stage. And so verse 29, he brings in this, this kind of weird analogy if you, if you don't understand the context here. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And so the friend of the bridegroom that, he's refer, that he refers to in verse 29, he had primary responsibility in the wedding event. And that was to his, his several. He w- worked in planning and different things related to the wedding. But he had one primary responsibility in the wedding. And that was to make sure that the bride arrived at the wedding to be married to the bridegroom. And so the friend of the bridegroom here, we would consider this, this fellow to be like the best man in our weddings. He was responsible for bringing this bride to the bridegroom. And once the bride arrived to the bridegroom, the friend is not the big deal. The friend is not the big deal. The friend just kind of fades into the background. Why? Because his work was complete. And so John here is reminding his followers that Jesus is the goal of his life. And he says so much by, by, by saying in verse 29, he rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And so why does John say that his joy is complete? He's not dead yet. It's coming. He's actually going to be beheaded for his stand for truth later. But he's not dead yet, so why is his joy complete? It's because in the divine economy of God, his major work is complete. Because he is the friend of the bridegroom, and he is pointing to the, to, to the bridegroom himself. He's been faithful to his task. He hears the bridegroom's voice, and he sees that many are actually fo- leaving him, leaving John, to follow after the bridegroom. And he is not just passively okay about this. He's in favor of this. And so what are ca- what's causing his his Followers, anxiety, grief, competition, envy is actually causing John joy. They're coming to him and saying, hey, everybody is leaving because of this guy. What are you going to do about this? And John is saying, no, this is supposed to happen because this guy is the goal. He rejoices in those that are leaving for the bridegroom. And so to live for God's glory, we have to understand our role in God's kingdom we must understand that Jesus is the goal of our lives. And then verse 30, to live for God's glory, we must understand that God uses our lives to exalt Jesus. God uses our lives to exalt Jesus. Verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. The word must here in verse 30, it's, it's a divine imperative. It, it carries the idea of that which is the determined will of God. Before creation began, this was set in place. And there's no turning this over. And so John's mindset wasn't that he could, he could chill now just that, that Jesus was on the scene. Rather, he viewed Jesus' rise to prominence and his fading into relative obscurity as necessary. And this wasn't John's plan for his life. This was God's plan for his life. When he makes this statement in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. He's saying God is running my life. And how that affects me, I simply say, yes. Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And so it could mean seasons of rejoicing. It could mean seasons of suffering, seasons of promotion, seasons of being made nothing. We may be used prominently. We may exist in relative obscurity. 
regardless of how it plays out in life, we exist to exalt Jesus. And God designs to use our lives to exalt Him, where we are with what we are doing. And in John's context here, the moment had come for a significant handoff to the one that he had been declaring. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. And now the situation is, no, he is here. And so this is not about me. And you can almost envision John saying at at a later account to these guys who are coming to him saying, hey, what's up? Everybody's leaving saying, you guys really need to consider bailing out as well. Because he's better than me. He's greater than me. He must increase. I must decrease. And so what do we do? We live for God's glory. And we do this everywhere. We do this in crazy ways through work overseas and different magnificent realities and preaching the word and growing churches and all of these things. And we do it by showing up at work on Monday morning and working as if we're working for the Lord. And we do it when we're bathing kids at night. We do it when we are taking care of the things that God has entrusted to us. We do it in the seemingly great realities of life, but we do this in the mundane realities of life as well. You see, for some reason, especially in the American church, we've compartmentalized spirituality. Right? Where where living for God's glory relates to when I get on a plane and I go to the Middle East and serve the Lord in a different context. But while I'm here, you know, I'm just working. But there's that doesn't happen in the on the pages of scripture. We work for God's glory. We get on planes and go to places for God's glory. We raise families for God's glory. We we preach and teach and sing in churches for God's glory. We fill in the blank for God's glory. And so if we're going to be successful according to God's standard, we trust in God's sovereignty. We live for God's glory. And then number three, we rest in God's salvation. We rest in God's salvation. Verses 31 through 36 provide some commentary on the narrative of verses 22 through 30. And namely pointing to the fact that Jesus is superior. Jesus is greater. Jesus has preeminence over John the Baptist and over us. And so we have to rest in God's salvation. Three three realities here in, in resting in God's salvation. One, we rest in the origin of our salvation. Verse 31, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. We're resting in this origin of our salvation. Jesus comes from heaven. He is not a creation of earth. And so it is with our salvation. John the Baptist, to consider the context here, John the Baptist is speaking from where? He's speaking from the earth. Why? Because that's where he comes from. Jesus is different. Jesus isn't speaking someone else's words. Jesus is speaking his own word. And so we have to we have to realize this same reality that John the Baptist experienced here and in his ministry. We are of the earth. Jesus alone is of heaven. And there's no way possible, no way possible that we can have preeminence, we can have supremacy over Jesus. Let's be confessional for just a moment and just say, agree with one another, we are inherently glory thieves. 
We like to steal the glory. We like to keep the glory. We like to turn the spotlight of the glory onto ourselves. But when we understand that salvation doesn't originate with us, it's not from earth, it's from heaven, there's, there's no glory for us to steal. It's all the glory of Christ. And so we rest in God's salvation by resting in the origin of our salvation. Also, we rest in the truth of our salvation. Verses 32 through 33, He bears witness to what He has seen and heard, yet no one receives His testimony. Whoever receives His testimony sets His seal to this, that God is true. This is a restatement of chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Essentially, He came to His own and His own did not receive Him, but to all who did receive Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. We're resting in the truth of our salvation, that, that salvation is of Christ alone. And Jesus doesn't just speak truth. Jesus doesn't just teach truth. He actually is truth. It's who He is, John 14, 6, on the way, the truth, and the life. And so Jesus speaks the words of God because He actually is the Word of God. His knowledge is not some second-hand knowledge. He's not receiving, hey, say this. He knows say this. So Jesus is not just the messenger sent from God like John the Baptist. He is the actual object and the focus of our faith. He's not just a good person sent from God. He is God. And so therefore, as we're, we're resting in the truth of our salvation, we're, remind, we're reminded that our salvation hangs on a person, on Jesus Himself, who was and is the truth. And so what do we do with this truth? We, verse 33, we receive this truth, setting a seal on it. Whoever receives this testimony sets a seal on this, that God is, sets a seal to this, that God is true. And so we rest in the origin and the truth of our salvation. Also, verse, verses 34 through 36, we rest in the power of our salvation. We rest in the power of our salvation. Look at verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For He gives the Spirit without measure. For God loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We rest in the power of our salvation. Jesus spoke with power. The Holy Spirit was belonged to Jesus without limitation or reservation. And in the Old Testament, think about it, in the Old Testament and even in John the Baptist, the Spirit would come upon someone for a particular task and the Spirit came upon that person in proportion to that task. However, Jesus, verse 34, has the Spirit without measure. And so the Father didn't dole out the Spirit a little bit to His Son. He overwhelmed His Son with the Spirit. We see that coming in, in the baptism and the onset of Jesus' ministry and we're resting in this power because it's the same power that, that Christ had, we have, in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so God's divine relationship, the basis of that relationship is that of love, verse 32. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. And God loves us with this same love. Remember, we talked about this last week. God's love. What was the motivating factor for God saving us? Love. Not pity. Love. Why did God save us? Because of His love. And so that, what does this truth do? What does this reality do for us? This reality, remembering that God saved us simply because of His love. Not because of anything that we brought to the table. 
It was actually in spite of all that we brought to the table. God saves us. What does this do? This crushes our pride. This crushes our pride. And reminds us that anything good within us is from God alone. And so we have no room for being a glory thief. We have no room for envy. We have no room for jealousy. We have no room for competition. So what do we do? Verse 36, we believe. You hopefully are beginning to hear the resounding beating of the drum. Believe, believe, believe. Oh, each week we're coming right back to this reality of believe. And so what do we do? We believe. We want to be successful according to God's standard. What do we do? We believe in the Son of God and we trust Him with our lives. And we can trust Him because He is the origin, He is the truth, and He is the power of our salvation. Now, there's another option. We see it there in verse 36. It's kind of a, kind of a downer way to finish the chapter there. If you think about it, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So wrath here does not mean some sudden gust of passion or a burst of temper. God doesn't throw temper tantrums. Wrath here is pointing to the settled displeasure of God against sin. We see it ultimately in the crucifixion of Jesus and Him paying the penalty for sin. And when we do not believe, we bear the wrath of our sin. And even God's wrath is good because He acts against that which is morally evil in a way that aligns with His love. <coughs> and so back to the question that, that we started with. How do, you, how do you measure, specifically, how do you measure success for your life? And the kind of success that, that matters for all eternity comes from trusting in God's sovereignty, from living for God's glory, and from resting in God's salvation. What's, what's another word for this type of success? It's the word we began with, faithfulness. It's simply being faithful. The Christian life, while an incredibly interesting journey, is really simple. It's really simple. You see it there in verse 36. The essence of faithfulness is obedience. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. John is equating believing in God with obedience here. You see it there. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. <coughs> but the wrath of God remains on him. Faithful obedience is the final measure of success according to God's standard. Consistent, steady obedience. Not flashy. It's not glamorous. But it's faithful. It's faithful to what God has called us to do and who God has called us to be. And what was our, our, our character for this morning, John the Baptist? What was he? He was faithful to the task for which God created him. To spend his life pointing to the Messiah. And may we be as well. All the while declaring what John declared there in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. You see, faithfulness sets us free from this trap of comparison. We're always measuring ourselves up against someone else. Always someone better off than we are. Always someone worse off than we are. But 
Faithful obedience sets us free from this comparison. It sets us free from the impulses of the world. Faithfulness, success by God's standard, allows us to rest in the joy that is ours in Christ. John's words from verse 29 have to echo in our ears. The one who has the bridegroom, has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So faithfulness allows us to rest in the joy that is ours in Christ as we consistently declare to ourselves and to others, He must increase. I must decrease. He must increase. I must decrease. And in those seasons of life, those situations in life, when we start to think, I'm going to take some of the glory here. Let's remember that we're, we're trusting in, in God's sovereignty here. We are to be living for God's glory, and all the while we are resting in His salvation. It sounds like, based on the text, that this, this whole dynamic that we call the Christian life is really about God. Doesn't it? And that's because it is. And so then we can, like we read in Second Corinthians, we can in those seasons when we are afflicted, when we are perplexed, when we are persecuted, when we are forsaken, we can say, no, it's so that the life of Jesus may be manifested through me. And so come what may. Our desire, our passion, our goal, our drive is to simply be faithful. Pointing to Christ, living for His glory and for His glory alone. And so we have to ask the question, Whose glory are we living for? What, what is that passion in your life? Is it stuff, success, happiness, fill in the blank? Or is it truly Jesus? Just to let you know where this lands, our character for the morning, he gets beheaded. For a stand for truth. And so, this doesn't always end in some flowery ride off into the sunset with butterflies in the meadow story. This often ends with us being crushed, with us being persecuted, with us being pressed down, with us being afflicted in every way, with us having thorns in the flesh that God says, no, I'm not taking that away from you. But it's in those seasons when we truly know that Christ is all and is in all. And we realize it's His glory that we're living for. And so, since we are living for His glory, since we are trusting in His sovereignty, since we are resting in His salvation, you know what we can do? We can trust Him with now. We can trust Him with now. And we can trust Him as we seek to live faithful, obedient lives in the regular rhythms of every day. And He's worth it. He is absolutely worth it. Who are you living your life for? Whose glory are you pursuing in life? Let's pray and we'll sing. Father in heaven, thank you for the truth of Scripture, teaching us that it is Jesus' glory alone that we're to live for. God, we, we confess that we trust in your sovereignty we desire to live for your glory. 
and to also rest in your salvation. Thank you that all these truths are ours in Christ and in Him alone. We pray it in His name. Amen.